before we get to today's show, I am excited to be gearing up for season three of Innovation for All. We are currently looking for amazing guests and topics that we can cover next season, and I want to hear from you. I certainly have a set of ideas that I'm excited about covering. We might do an episode on revenge porn. Uh, We might hit whether cashless businesses disadvantage the poor, all sorts of good stuff. But I really want to know, what would you like to learn about? Who are the experts you'd like to hear from? That could either be a specific topic you have in mind, a specific guest you have in mind, or maybe sort of a vague thing you're thinking about. Like I'm thinking about whether virtue signaling online could be improved in some more meaningful way. Is there a guest that I could find for that? So if you've got great ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about next season, or just generally you have feedback on the show, either guests you've really liked or topics you'd like to hear more about, I really want to know. Shoot me an email at info at innovationforallcast.com. That's info at innovationforallcast.com. Or you can always tag me on Twitter at InforAllPodcast. And with that, enjoy today's show. Okay. Can you say, Alexa, stop the timer. Alexa, timer. What about Alexa, stop? Stop. Say what? Who? Alexa, stop. Can you say, okay, Google? Okay, Google. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. Today's guest is Kava Azertosh. Kava holds a PhD in biomedical engineering from the University of California, Irvine, with a focus on vision science. Kava's career has been focused on innovating software applications in the neuroscience and now artificial intelligence domain. In 2015, he co-founded KidSense.ai after realizing that children are unable to effectively communicate with the technology around them through voice. So why did I want to have Kava on the podcast? Well, when I think about innovation for all, one of the things I like to think about is who is being overlooked by traditional business or technology. And in this case, kids happens to be one of those. So here's a quick example. Okay, can you say, Alexa, stop the timer. Timer. What about Alexa? Stop. Stop. Say what? Who? Alexa, stop. That's my two-year-old trying to talk to Alexa, our voice-powered assistant. We use Alexa all the time in our house to play music, to set timers, and he's learned those cues. He knows when the timer starts alerting us that the timer has gone off, we'll say, Alexa, stop. And he sort of repeats it after us. But Alexa never responds to him. And that's because he's a two-year-old and he's hard to understand. So KidSense, they have developed their own models that can recognize children's speech patterns. So one of the things we do talk about in this episode is, is that really a valuable use of technology? And maybe we could, we could talk about that a little bit more in the episode. But it's easy to imagine from a technical perspective that training a voice recognition model on children who, you know, speak really poorly, make lots of errors, they don't speak very clearly, 
they change over time. You know, my two-year-old now will be different in, when he's five years old and his speech will sound very different. So how does Kid Sense deal with all those, those different sort of auditory nuances in their model? And lastly, it's obvious that there are going to be huge privacy issues around this, right? Like people are already pretty freaked out about the thought of, you know, an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home listening to them all the time. Do we want them to communicate with our children? So we talk about that as well. And we talk about how they address those privacy concerns and and their solutions. And before we get to today's episode, a quick request. If you like Innovation for All, if you enjoy these conversations, I hope you'll help us share it with additional people, more people who you think will enjoy the conversations and the issues we're exploring. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with a friend or two and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. We believe these conversations are important and sharing it with others really helps us reach more people. And without further ado, Kava Azertash of KidSense. Kava Azertash, welcome to Innovation for All. Thank you very much, Shana. Good to be here. What is KidSense? So KidSense is the only, the easiest, the most complete voice AI privacy solution for children in the voice-first space. Okay, so this is like, I as an adult can communicate with my Amazon Alexa, but my two-year-old probably couldn't communicate with my Amazon Alexa very well. Exactly. So we built solutions that could understand kids, and these solutions basically start from a speech recognition for kids, NLP and content, all the way to text-to-speech. And this is where the machine talks back. And we built all these things on a really fully stack, highly secure and compliant manner, basically. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to get into the data side of how you built this model, all the compliance issues which you reference. But before we get there, how did you start this company? I know it's got sort of a tangential origin story. Exactly. Yeah. So when we first started, we had this concept of applying the fundamentals of the real neuroscience of language acquisition, applying that to technology so we can build the real foundation for language learning for kids. A lot of times when we... what is your background? Because I think it's relevant to that story. Right. Yeah, I'm a, I got my PhD as a vision scientist. So I, I studied how the light becomes sight and I got interested in basically neuroscience uh, of all the signals from voice and sound around us. Perfect. Yeah. And so continue. And yeah, so we had this concept of applying the how we learn our own languages, how we can expand that to other languages, and the real exposure to uh, fundamental units of sound, phonemes, complex sounds, combination of sounds, and all that. So instead of getting kids to memorize words and phrases with respect to learning a new language, we wanted to build a platform so we can basically give kids the tools to learn languages and sound like a native later in life. The concept was a little bit abstract. You know, we had a lot of internal studies that we had done that had shown efficacy and data. I formed a company around this. For us, the easiest means of deploying this technology was building educational apps ebooks and games so uh, from the basically really talented team in 2014 i was joined by my co-founder who is a, basically a neuroscientist as well and uh, we published 10 or more educational apps games all based on conversation 
And these tools are basically the real apps that take you to the whole concept of exposing you to the real, you know, phonemes of different languages, trying to give you the tools in the sound spectrum of things that are absent in your native language. We had over a million users, over 150,000 active users on our apps and games. However, when I travel to Asia, try to have conversations with our user base, with our educator partners, with our tech savvy parents and all that, we realize that all these tools that our technologies are on them, like smartphone, tablets, robotics, you know, they're not understanding kids correctly. We learned that the tools that we used to use, namely IBM Watson, Microsoft Azure, or in China, basically Baidu, they're not designed or built with kids' data. So therefore, they're not meant to understand kids in the right way. So we had a lot of data on hand. We had basically collected tens of thousands of hours of speech data from kids of different ages, different countries, different languages. So in around mid-2016, early 2017, we decided to sort of stop building and maintaining our apps and shifted our focus towards building a technology that could understand kids, that could basically let technology communicate with kids better. We launched this in twenty in late 2017 in the online format. Um, right shortly after that, we started kind of focusing on inferring all that technology to work offline slash embedded slash edge. Edge is the new fancy word for offline solutions. And we launched the Edge Voice AI for kids in September of 2018. So we had a basically really interesting journey coming in from a language teaching background, understanding the real sound spectrum of different languages. We built a really sophisticated sound map that could take you from language one to language two. And then from that, along with all the data that we had collected, we started basically building this voice AI solution for kids. And then we became fascinated with all the privacy issues, all the, you know, sort of the ways to safeguard our kids against their AI, you know, tools around us. So we basically started building other layers that are more compliant in the whole voice AI space. And yep, this is where we have now uh, KidSense AI, which is, I believe the most complete voice AI solution to address all these compliance issues for kids. Man, there's a lot there. Originally, the goal was to develop a language software that could teach another language in a sort of organic way, like a child might actually learn a language. And along the way, you discovered one, voice recognition for kids sucks. And two, wow, we have all this great data that could solve that problem. And that's sort of where you've let, what sort of brought you to where you are today. That's exactly correct, Shana, yes. So you you mentioned some of the privacy regulations. Let's go ahead and just dive into those right straight up front. So first of all, what is COPA? Because I believe that'll be relevant to this conversation. Absolutely. So COPA was passed, I believe, in, in the year 2000, right? And COPA is the government um, regulation to basically put a safeguard around kids' data. Kids' data means anything from the PII, which is their personal identifiable information, all the way to their voices, their face information, you know. So it kind of bars technology 
and tools around us to collect, store, share, and sell these PII information from kids. Beyond that, there is the uh, GDPR, the new California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, and the new Washington PA, just WPA, that, are, that actually was just passed uh, last month. So again, all these things are designed to build a really guard around our kids so that their data are not stored, shared, and sold by uh, big technology companies. Hmm. Those feel like they would be insurmountable barriers. So I'm excited to hear how you address them. But I guess one of the things I'm curious about before we dig into that is, so GDPR, which was passed, gosh, what, summer of 2018 now? Um, Correct. How does GDPR affect the regulations that you have to contend with? Because I guess coming from more of a marketing-y kind of space, I know that it restricts the ways that one can collect and distribute data without the consumer's awareness. But um, how does that affect your work? Exactly. Yeah. So let me take a step back on that, Shana. So voice as the evolving user interface is a big part of all this loss, right? Basically, we come from interacting with machines through keyboard and mouse. We moved on to touch and swipe. And now a lot of things around us are based on voice. And all these um, regulations, again, GDPR, CCPA, and COPA, they're designed to either ask for a verifiable parental consent. So every time that a kid or adult is interacting with technology that is collecting their information, again, from their PII, voice, or facial, you know, they need to give a consent that they're allowing the technology to store, share potentially sell that information. So what we've done is we have designed a platform that we never collect any data from our partners' devices. So our technology is designed offline, meaning the actual conversion of a speech to text, which is the cornerstone of communicating with machine, is all done on device. So we never send any of the audio files to our servers right? And the audio comes in, gets converted to text on device, the audio dies, and then we send the text packets to our server, and then we get a response back from our servers. Mm. So it sounds like you get around this by doing all the computations directly on the device, and then the only information you are sending away to a server is, is text. It's not that, that kid's sort of voice fingerprint. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So we actually, again, we convert this speech to text on device, which is basically a really well-known field. Beyond that, we have a voice diarization platform that identifies if the speaker is an adult or a kid. If it's a kid, we directly send the audio to our solution. And we have another layer. It's a filter technology that filters their name, addresses, school information, social, also gives parents a tool to monitor the content that kids have access to from the shopping habits, uh, some music, and everything else. So we've tried to build different layers of, you know, basically see compliance around our solution. You actually raised an interesting sort of um, subtle issue around privacy for kids. So I think traditionally we've thought about privacy in, in the way we've described it thus far, protecting kids from advertisers, uh, collecting more information than we intend for them to, to collect. But in there was sort of this idea that kids' behavior might be able to be monitored by parents. One could also think of that as another kind of violation of privacy, that, that right now kids have privacy 
from their parents about maybe those communications. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. No, no, that's exactly right. So from our background coming in from basically teaching languages with educational apps on games, and uh, we had a lot of feedback from our user base, right? A lot of it was around the screen time that parents are not a big fan of given their kids' tablets and smartphones. Beyond that, parents did not feel comfortable not knowing what content kids have access to because it was very difficult. You know, there is a lot of filters that you could put on your tablet, but it's very easy to go beyond them, right? And like having that background, we wanted to be really mindful of that. So that's how we built these tools to both enable parents and our partners that are building these solutions to give access to a tool that parents could control and monitor what content uh, kids have access to. So I, I get that as a parent, I think the most low-hanging fruit concern would be, I don't want too much information from my child going out into the wild probably a lesser concern is I'm invading their privacy by knowing what they're sharing. But if there was a parent that cared about their kid's privacy from themselves, they might be able to disable that, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. So they can basically disable access to shopping because we don't want our kids to go out and buy a thousand football with Echo. And then beyond that, we don't want our kids, I mean, at certain ages, of course, right, within our um, window of, of audience to basically have access to certain type of information, music, and etc. So we just give those, those tools to parents and they can use it if they really want to, to be honest. Let's talk about the, the data side of all this. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is I find it fascinating, this idea that who the data is collected from ends up ultimately affecting the kinds of algorithms that are baked into everything, really. And we had Yuta Treviranis on one of the very first episodes of the show who spoke extensively about that. And for our listeners who haven't heard that episode, I, I highly recommend that they, they revisit it. Can you tell me about, I'd love to hear about both the feature differences you have to contend with in children's voice and then also how you went around that data collection. So maybe Absolutely. we can unpack both of those. Absolutely, yes. So Shana, when you build an AI solution, there are two major components. One is the way that the engine is built, right? We came from language teaching background, so we understand how we learn our own languages, how we expand that to other languages. So understanding the acoustic side of things, understanding the language model of the engine was very essential in building this technology. And this is one of our IP components that we basically have a maturing AI engine that basically matures as a linguistic maturity kind of happens. So we have different mini models that would understand kids from three to five, five to seven, seven to 10, 10 and beyond. So depending on how the data is classified as it enters the engine, the right model gets deployed and you know we basically convert the speech to text. But beyond that, one of the key components in building any sustainable and successful AI machine is the data, right? As I said, we started off by utilizing other AI-based speech recognition techs from Microsoft, IBM, and in China, Baidu. And we learned that these tools are not designed to understand kids. The good thing about us is we had tools to teach languages. We had tools to assess how kids speak. So we knew exactly what 
data set to collect to cover a really phonetically rich and balanced data set on a speech spectrum. And with that, we covered, yeah, I mean, different languages, different ages, and everything came to us labeled and tagged. So we basically bypassed having the need to, to have a team of data scientists to sit there, filter, and then noise the data from adult speeches. And we built a really sophisticated engine that works really well on kids. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you go about collecting the data? It sounds like, so I'm assuming parental consent is, is required for all of this. Absolutely, yeah. So the way that basically we collect our data is we partner up with school chains, daycare chains, and other apps, and we offered our services. And a lot of times parents have to sign up and give us the permission, right, to collect and use the data. And that's how we own this data. Beyond that, in our speech assessment tools, right, we launched so-called data collection campaigns where we offer a free service on assessing how kids speak by giving parents or teachers a really sophisticated dashboard on the intelligibility scale, their intonation, pace, and everything else. And in return, we own the data that that actually comes in. So this allows us to collect on the words and combination words and phrases that we need for our machines. And in return, we can give out a really sophisticated kind of dashboard to you know, our, um, basically um, user base and partners. And it sounds like because you, you were originally doing this for a sort of language training purposes, you not only have a lot of data, you have it in a lot of different kinds of languages. Exactly, yeah. So we have it in basically, I mean, it's not... All the languages, we kind of set out to cover the top eight languages, but we are confident that at least in the Asian families of languages and, of course, the English language, we have a very good amount of data. And beyond that, we have an end-to-end tool that we can enter in a new language, say Swahili, and knowing what data on what sound spectrum to collect, we can pump out a new speech model in weeks. That's amazing. We, we've spoken extensively on this show about how having lots of different kinds of data, ultimately, it may take longer to train your model, but at the end of the day, you end up with a more robust, rich data model that can accommodate more edge cases. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, dealing with kids, kids have a really, really random speech patterns. Beyond that, the speech is uh, maturing as a function of age. So we had to basically collect a variety of data. Even beyond that, Shana, one of our difficulties was that we have specific data on both native and non-native speakers, right? So basically, if a Chinese kid is trying to learn English, we have that data set. So we can basically partner up with language teaching companies and allow them to use the right model to better understand this set of data. I mean, you just identified, so outside of the, the child voice recognition space, you're sort of touching on other places in voice recognition where there, there's room for improvement, right? So um, I have a friend who his wife is Indian and he jokes, like, Siri never understands her. Siri never understands a damn word. <laughs> and it's because she's a non-native English speaker. So, I mean, you can imagine Absolutely. that this, the same kinds of challenges you've already addressed in the kids space, you can imagine would be extremely valuable to adult voice recognition as well. Exactly. And I can kind of relate to this pain point. 
I met my co-founder. We wanted to take a China. We purchased the package to learn Chinese for about 600 bucks, spent about four months on it. And man, all the sounds, all the words, they sounded very similar to us. So we had lost the ability to differentiate the sounds, let alone speaking them. So that explains why I have an accent or why basically learning Chinese was very uh, difficult because as a kid, I was not exposed to all those tools and all that. And that is, again, how our languages are formed and how we came across this point that kids are not being uh, understood right by technology. Well, and you identified some interesting challenges among kids as well. And I'd love to unpack you know, again, not in a super IP heavy way, but kind of the considerations, the features that go into your model. So it sounds like one of the unique challenges with children is that it's dynamic, that kids start out with nothing and then they acquire adult level uh, voice patterns at some point, but that it's, it's changing along the way. So it sounds like that's one challenge. What are some of the maybe features or characteristics that you observe in children that, that change along the way, maybe like cadence or et cetera? Exactly. So when we first started building this technology, we had a lot of data. That was good and bad because we had to come up with means of understanding all these variations or as a function of age, right? So the way that our model is built is we have a basically a two-component engine. One is the acoustic side of things that basically understand the phonemes. The other one is the language model, which basically makes sure that the the context is right. So having that data, having all the different uh, variety in the kids' speeches that we had was helpful in building a really sophisticated and comprehensive acoustic model. Because kids have really random thoughts, you know, it's when you're trying to have a conversation about, say, teaching them cartoon, I mean, colors, they might be thinking about food or Peppa Pig and everything else. So uh, we had a lot of noise in our language model data set. But again, that noise turned out to be very helpful because, again, uh, we're collecting data from kids, building tools for kids. So we didn't really have to go in and chop stuff out. You know, and Everything was used at the end of the day to build a more comprehensive, complete language model that in conjunction with acoustic model gave us the, I believe, the most complete voice AI solution for kids that, again, starts off with a speech recognition. I like that example of the, like, we're talking about colors, but your kid's talking about Peppa Pig. Right. And the importance of, you know, one at the beginning of developing a model like this might naively think, oh, I got to take that out. It's not relevant. But to your point, because kids actually do that, like that's the environment you want to map this AI onto, that's actually important training information so that then later on, when your kid is learning colors, they're talking about Peppa Pig, the model is able to adapt to that. That's exactly right. So one example on that is, again, this might be beyond this topic, and it's not really in our focus, but when we have conversations with academia around um, using our tools for basically kids that have some speech impairments, you know, such as uh, dyslexia or autism, we see that the our models are functioning well on the acoustic side. But because of the language model not being trained on that specific audience, it doesn't function as well. So if we were to build anything specific for, say, autistic kids, we would have to go out and have conversation with 
those kids collect and train and build a model that is very specific for those audience. Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers customer research delivered. Customer Research Delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about Customer Research Delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. I would love to change gears a little bit and... um, Because of that, I know this really isn't your problem, but my question is, some of the canonical use cases for this technology are either, you know, having a kid ask Alexa a joke or tell a story, but in many ways, this is sort of like tech junk food. Do you think there are more important or legitimate reasons that we need voice recognition to be accessible for kids? So we deal with anyone that builds anything from hardware to software that talks to kids. And this goes from a tracker that kids is basically that is based on voice. So a kid just kind of talks to the device and asks to make a phone call to mom or asks like how far is moon from the earth, right? So the same thing could go with a, a kid's toy, a smartwatch, a smart speaker. These are designed to basically help kids with their daily lives, you know, as a virtual assistant. However, I'm with you with that. I still haven't seen that killer application for voice and kids. I have my hopes up for something in the educational space, something that is basically going to teach kids STEM or language learning with voice, right? Basically through the power of conversation. And uh, it's less distractive than basically the something that's on a tablet and it's basically like just like having a teacher and it's, it's just through a conversation so i have my hopes up shana for some for someone to come out with that really good application to teach kids with with conversation it sounds like you're hoping someone's going to build your original product i know right <laughs> that's a good one maybe someday i'm really excited about this cuz i've gotten very interested in this idea that the kind of data we collect matters, you know, that having this completeness of data, it affects the kinds of technology that we end up with at the end of the day. And as technology increasingly touches our lives, it's really important to think about this at the beginning. Yeah, I hope hope people hear this and are like, oh, crap, what have we overlooked? (laughs) Exactly. The way I kind of think about it is AI is like a baby's mind, right? So we never teach them how to put a sentence up together. This is where the subject goes. This is where the object goes. This is where the um, verb goes, right? And they collect all this data through conversations and then they learn on their own how to formulate sentences and everything else. So to me, this is just like that. Do you ever end up with weird errors in speech then? So, you know, kids who are acquiring language, they like my son right now is two and he says, like, my want to do it. And he means I want to do it. And it's adorable. Do you have adorable errors in speech that are, you know, generated by the AI? You know what? So there is a field like um, speech intention. So basically, 
we convert uh, the speech to text and then we run it through so-called intent um, analysis. So we try to quantify what the intent is. And then that gets into another layer of the, na- the natural language um, understanding. So we basically, yes, we do get those, but the final text that gets sent to the servers, it's actually the one that we think is, is what the intent was, you know? Mm. Got it. And I guess the last question on the voice space before we move over to the business side. So, you know, we had talked before about maybe the use cases we have for voice tech for kids today are kind of limited. What about, we see voice in a lot more products for adults. I'm wondering, are there any ones that you feel like are especially exciting? Because I think a lot of them for adults too are a little bit junk foodie. It's like, I can tell Alexa to play a song or, you know, I can reorder some paper towels, but those aren't you know, those aren't game changers. Right. I'm just wondering if there's any ones that you're excited about in general. I mean, going to all these shows and conferences, so people are adding voice to almost everything. This is uh, basically scary because it kind of reminds me of the dot-com bubble where everybody tried to build the website for things that didn't really need to go online and like lots of them failed, right? So I think a couple of things is people that are in the field, they have to be more mindful on containing where the voice can go and it really adds value, right? To me, we see that voice is in our cars, appliances and all that. I kind of don't need to talk to my aunt, like a fridge and all that, but there are appliances that are based on voice, right? To me, I, I like talking to my car. You know, I think there is a company up north that, are, that have very specific commands for car control. So if I can adjust my mirror just by telling it, you know, and then that is a cool sort of a feature. But yeah, I mean, that's our challenge, man, you know, because we still haven't seen a very good application for voice and people are just getting very excited, you know, on adding voice to the way that you order your sort of a Starbucks coffee, right? But Very how much important. of that gets, you know, really hits the mainstream, you know, that uh, remains to be seen, I think. And I love your car example, actually, because I think about all the times that I've fumbled around exactly. maybe in my husband's car looking for like, oh, where's the where's the defrost button? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but if some of those could be done by voice, just by a simple command, yeah, it doesn't really have to be something that is scripted, but something that understands the intention, I, I think that has value. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the business model is I think it explains why you're able to sidestep this this question of, What's the most valuable use case for this? So tell me, how does KidSense fit into the broader technology space? Yeah, so we originally started charging just like how the bigger guys charge, like the Google, Amazon, Microsoft, either based on the number of API calls or the time. However, this was difficult for you as a device maker or a dev to truly anticipate what the use of the technology is. So if the usage went beyond what was forecasted, you were at a loss. So we designed a package because our technology is offline. We don't really have all this really expensive server cost. We have a no limit use, one-time flat fee per device. So we basically charge a fraction of what the so-called online or server-based solutions might charge you as a developer. Got it. And the reason that you're able to sidestep that earlier question is essentially you aren't building a product that uses this. You're selling the technology to other companies who will use it in services or products as they see fit. 
Exactly. Yeah. So this is basically a, a platform as a service or somewhat a middleware as a service where we sit on the operating system right before the application layer and we power that application or slash the conversation with our SDKs that we basically get to charge um, much less on a flat fee uh, sort of a manner. And how do you think about your growth? I mean, are you in a position where like if Google wanted to buy you to incorporate this technology, you'd be excited to sell or do you want to have them as a customer along with everybody else? No, I think for us, we're seeing a transition because a lot of our customers are switching from all the bigger guys. Like we have three of our customers are switching from Google and Microsoft and one in Asia from Baidu, right? So for us, it's just basically trying to get more of that market share, right? And while we continue on building newer technology, I think um, it's a little bit too early for us to kind of think about acquisition, given the pivot that we had in our business and given the fact that this is only maybe a couple of years worth of development. I'm very happy with what the technology is, but with respect to do we get the, the, um, the real value at this point, I think we have another couple of years to go. Do you even ask for the audience? Yes, I would like to get in touch with anyone that is building anything that talks to kids, anything from uh, educational software, such as if you guys are building uh, you know, software to teach math, science, or even teaching um, languages, I would love to get in touch with you and see how we can support your application. Beyond that, anyone that is building any hardware that is basically aimed towards kids from smartwatch, smart speakers, uh, we offered a fully compliant offline solution that could understand kids the best. Beyond that, we have layers that would enable you to tap into the array of different content domains that we offer. So we can truly support um, any application and cut down the dev time by almost half. Do you also work with companies who have voice recognition broadly that doesn't target kids and they want to just expand their technologies to children? Or is that less common? No, no. I think for us, if we can try to strike partnerships with Amazons of the world and be on their offering list to their customer, and I think that, that has a lot of value. That way we can try to basically cater to so-called the, the kid side of the conversation. If someone is building a general audience device like a smart speaker that, that is meant to talk to the whole family, with our technology, we can identify if the speech is from an adult, so that part could be handled by Amazon, or if it's from the kid, it can actually come to our solution and remain fully compliant. And with that, I'd like to turn to our Think a Little Different round of questions. Sure, that's exciting. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? That's a really great question, Shayna. What I changed my mind about is who I want to work with. Basically, in the last year or so, we've had some problems with our team. And startup as a whole is a really lonely space. People that come in and trying to help you out, you've got to really vet them completely. You've got to make sure that they're all on the same page and share the same goal. Any, even the slightest deviation would become a 
issue down the line. So people that we want to hire, they have to basically understand that this is not just an 8 to 5 or a 9 to 5 work and this is a truly startup with a lot of limitations. But there might be a, you know, a big payday someday and that's a big might, right? So people that come on board, they have to really enjoy the sort of the startup space. And yeah, I think I didn't really realize that back in the days, you know, and just basically dealing with different team members and looking at their motives and their passionate. And, you know, I kind of come to a point that when I want to hire up, either it's a BD sales or technical team, I want to make sure that, that there is a very good culture of fit for our startup, basically. I've heard this before. A lot of founders, I think, learn the value, no, maybe not the value of the human element. Maybe that's the opposite of what you're saying, but the, the trouble the human element can create. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. I think, you know, it, I mean, what actually helps it the most is to have a lot of conversations and just to kind of make sure that it's a good fit from day one. Is there a common practice that you think will change in the next decade or so? In what aspect? In the sort of running startup, in building technology, or in what sort of aspect of things? Yeah, it could be any of these. So broadly, this question is about looking around you and, and recognizing things that you think don't work and could maybe be better. And that could be anything from personal habits to startup culture to technology trends. Yeah, I think, you know, I kind of alluded to this in my last answer, I really believe that the whole concept of eight to five paycheck will go away. People will need to assume more ownership of their tasks. People will actually need to show more responsibility and care more because we sometimes take jobs as a paycheck and that will change because there is a lot of new workforce that are coming to the field, coming to the space that are really hungry for success. So I kind of think that, you know, when I travel to Asia, like specifically um, China, I, I see that China kids that are coming off to school, um, fresh off to school, they're really hungry for success. They're really competing on getting that desk job. And then when they get that job, they really work hard trying to maintain that job and they try to sort of excel. I've seen less of that in the States. And um, I kind of think that for U.S. to compete in a bigger scheme of things with other countries, we as a country have to basically think differently about our jobs and about the whole concept of eight to five paycheck. Who's someone you disagree with, but you think they have interesting ideas? Yes, so I come from academia. I believe that... There is a lot of good concepts and good ideas that are being worked on in academia, right? People's PhDs, people's postdocs and all that. But the problem that I have with academia is the pace of the work. I find that PIs are designed to sit there to write and get money off of governments but there is not enough oversight on how that money is spent or even beyond that, what is the true ROI to um, the economy of the money that's been spent on academia. You know, I believe, again, having a PhD and all that, I believe there are a little bit way too many PhDs. I don't think we need that many PhDs. And I think that 
exercise of basically just going for a graduate degree needs some overthinking. And, you know, some thinking has to be done over there, I think. Thank you for sharing that. What's a view that's widely held by your peers that you just aren't totally convinced by? Like in a company or as a, like a sort of like peer, like, like in the bigger scheme of things? Yeah, it could be either. It could be um, something in your space more directly or just a widely held view that you're maybe more skeptical of. Got it, got it. Yeah, I think this is a very good question, Shayna. When I go to all these networking events and I have conversation with other founders and CEOs and other C-levels, everybody is concerned about funding. Everybody is trying to tell a story that is convincing to investors. And I find that they're a little bit miscalculating things. A lot of the founders come from a technical background. They're a little bit too focused on the technical side of things. I haven't done this for the last four to five years. I've changed my mind and the way I look at new startups and new strategies and new opportunities in that I want to focus on the business model of things. Make sure that whatever that we're going to build, is it a time machine or is it just another marker? I wanted to have established business model and make sure that there is somebody that is willing to spend money and buy this. And at that point, there is business, there is a startup, and I would basically like to allocate time on building that up. I'm excited to hear that. And I can't agree with you more. I think, um, I hope that we increasingly see entrepreneurs take that position of having a sustainable business model that people are going to be willing to pay for. Correct. I'm hoping that's the way to go. So on the Innovation for All podcast, we focus on the intersection of innovation, so business, technology, entrepreneurship, and social impact. Who gets to have big ideas? How is technology impacting maybe disadvantaged groups? How can we use technology to help groups that have been traditionally overlooked? So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is, as I mentioned before, you're building a technology for a group that's been traditionally overlooked, kids, um, and it's one that you can imagine that might become a problem for in a few years if voice technology continues to proliferate. Who are two people you think would be interesting for us to speak to on the podcast? Yeah, I think um, there are a couple of people on the technical side of things. If you guys can speak to Jeff Hinton, I think that would add a lot of value. Dr. Hinton was one of the pioneers of basically the new methodology that is applied in AI. Is it from a voice recognition or speech or face or image and all that, right? He has basically published some really amazing work that has changed the field despite a lot of doubts in the early days. But his work has been cited like exponentially for the last maybe seven to 10 years. On the business side of things, a lot of people might be interested in talking to more of a successful entrepreneurs. I, on the other hand, would encourage um, you guys to talk to people that didn't really make it, you know, basically people that raised a lot of funds. It'd be nice to um, understand from their POV that what went wrong that they had to fold. So like last year, there was over 20 startups that were well-funded, over $50 million in funding that folded, right? So if we can get them hold of any of those C-levels and just get them to share their stories, I think that would be very um, sort of educational. 
Mm, interesting. So what's a resource you can suggest if someone wants to learn more about this space broadly? On the AI side of things, you know, Stanford has a very good, like at no cost, online uh, portal, which they have a lot of uh, lessons. Coursera has also a lot of lessons done by Andrew and G, which is basically, I think, the real um, one-on-ones of AI. Beyond that, I'm a big fan of um, audiobooks. One of the books that I tend to read almost three to four times a year is Zero to One from Peter Thiel. That kind of takes you to the whole sort of starting a company, all the challenges and how to deal with all the conflicts from both the business and the technical side of things. And where can people find either you or KidSense online? Yeah, we are at kidsense.ai. And basically, we try to put all of our information there and all my contact information is also on the website. Great. And we'll link to those from our show notes as well. Kava Azertosh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Shana, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com. <laughs>